Wakey, wakey, hands off, snakey. It's Saturday morning. You know what that means. It's time for your favorite and only Saturday morning hangover cure. Well, outside of a handful of aspirin and some bacon and eggs. It is time for Sports Frenzy 2.0, the weekend edition here on February the 17th, 2024, taping on Thursday the 15th, a little bit different here this week. I am the maestro Kevin Crane. Dave the Conquistador Height is off this week. Of course, our usual taping day fell on, oh, sweetie, sweetie, Valentine's Day. So, of course, he had to do the whole smooch up to his wife thing. That's fine. All the true love out there and Cupid and the chocolates and the cards and so i imagine that you kids out there those of you who did not indulge in valentine's day because you had nobody to hang out with which is perfectly cool believe me from experience you're probably better off alone but You probably went out the first chance you got Friday night, drowned your sorrows a little bit too much, and that's fine as well, as long as you weren't driving. But now I am here to get you through Saturday morning. Like I said, pound that aspirin, indulge in some greasy food, and we will discuss the best of the week when it comes to music movies, TV, and streaming. Give you some news tidbits to discuss. And of course, we will have moments of silence, unfortunately, as we have most often every week. And again, unfortunately, most often every week, the dumbasses of the week, the Red Foreman dumbasses of the week in the world of pop culture and entertainment. But as always, we start off with rock and roll. Now, we've got an off week when it comes to albums here. Don't have a new album for you. That will change starting next week. We should have a nice run for about four or five weeks at least, if not longer. Each and every Saturday morning, we should have a new album to review for you. Next week will be Blackberry Smokes. Brand new album, Be Right Here. So what we're going to talk about this week, we've got a couple new songs to review. And of course, I usually try to pick and choose based on, for the most part, stuff that I don't think Dave would want to listen to. So we've got a little bit of that for you here this week. But the main thing we're going to do, and I'm sure the Conquistador will jump in next week on this if he wants to is I do this every year. I go off on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and their politically correct bullshit when it comes to who they decide should be in the Rock Hall of Fame. Not the Music Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just rename the goddamn mistake by the lake. Just rename it if this is what we're going to do year in and year out. 
and all the all the namby pamby music critics just get over it and just accept it. No, I'm not gonna accept it. I don't have to. You don't have to. I don't have to. That's what they want. Doesn't matter if we're talking music, politics, sports. That's what they want. They want you to give up. They don't want you to fight for what you believe in. And I believe in rock and roll above all else. And this travesty known as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you think it's going to get better when they finally boot Jan Wenner out. And we got one concession, blatant and obvious concession, because Jan Wenner got kicked off the Foundation's Board of Directors, the Hall of Fame Foundation. And that, of course, is Foreigner, who I have been bitching and pissing and moaning about for years and years and decades. They finally made the final cut. The final 15. And now the fan vote is open for all that matters. That's another scam oh the fans really matter the fans really really matter that's why we have the fan vote which counts for point zero 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 one percent now i know it's not that bad but it's basically one one thousandth of the final vote one vote of approximately a thousand is this accumulated fan vote so Foreigner, for the first time ever, makes it to the final cut. And it was well publicized here recently that Jan Wenner was blackballing Foreigner. Amazing, isn't it, how he gets kicked out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in terms of being an overseer on the board of directors. And the first year he's gone, of course, because of his ridiculously pathetic, disgusting comments about African-Americans and women when it comes to influential rock and rollers, he goes out the door and Foreigner somehow waltzes in that door the next year, the first chance they get. Now, is that some kind of a C-Fans we're not as bad as you think we are. We got rid of the racist and the misogynist. And we know he hated Foreigner. So look, we're embracing Foreigner to a point. To a point. They haven't made it in yet, kids. And when I tell you the other 14 nominees, you tell me if you think, given the track record of these morons who run this thing, this awful glass mistake by the lake triangle, you tell me if you think they're going to do the right thing. I don't think they are. Because when I run through this list, yes, there are a couple interesting people finally included, of course, Foreigner being one of them. But think about who's been left out. So in addition to Foreigner, here are the other 14 final nominees for this year's class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Mariah Carey, Cher, Peter Frampton, Cool and the Gang, Lenny Kravitz, Oasis, Sinead O'Connor, Ozzy Osbourne, Charday, Mary J. Blige, the Dave Matthews Band, Eric B. and Rakim, Jane's Addiction, and finally, A Tribe Called Quest. Now, I believe I saw this year where they're actually looking at inducting seven. So almost half of this group will make it in. Now, in the past years, from what I can remember, you are only allowed to vote for five in the fan vote. And I believe they were allowed to put in at minimum of five, and then after that, more based on the voting. But now I think they're saying that now it's a minimum of seven. I'm not 100% on that, but if you go to the fan vote, you are allowed to now vote for seven out of these 15, where in the past it was only five. So you know I'm putting Foreigner in, number one. And I've been voting pretty much every day since they they opened this up. I know, again, I'm a hypocrite. It doesn't matter in the end. My vote doesn't matter. But if we take that attitude, anytime we have the smallest possible chance to make an impact, then we're screwed. Whether it's a presidential election or something is, in the end, inconsequential as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'll tell you the seven I've been voting for every day. I have not changed them up. It's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, well, there's so many great candidates. I probably shouldn't even be voting for seven. I should probably stop at five. Let's go real quick, name by name. In the order I just mentioned them, Mariah Carey, hell no. Mariah Carey belongs in the Music Hall of Fame, not in my Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I did vote for Cher. I will admit that. And that's one that I'm on the fence on. But at least Cher had a little bit more of an impact in pop culture. The old Sonny and Cher show. Some songs that you might consider close to rock and roll. More comfortable with Cher being in than a lot of these other people. Let's put it this way. If we're putting Dolly Parton in, I'm putting Cher in. And I know that's kind of a pathetic rationalization, but that's the way I feel about it. Foreigner, yes. 100% yes. First one I would put in. Peter Frampton, yes. Probably right after Foreigner, Frampton Comes Alive, one of the most influential albums of the 70s, if not the most influential live album of all time. One of them at least. So Frampton's in. I'm still on my apology tour for Cool and the Gang. After Dave and I, when we went to see Van Halen years and years and years ago at the United Center in Chicago, 
and Cool and the Gang was the opening act, and we decided just to sit out in the concourse drinking beer and watching a basketball game on TV. And I have felt awful about it ever since. Even though I still don't know how much I would have enjoyed the show. Cool and the Gang, in my opinion, has their place in music history. Again, more so in the Music Hall of Fame, maybe not in the Rock Hall of Fame. But if this is what I've got to deal with, then I'll take Cool and the Gang above some of these others. Lenny Kravitz, hell no. What the hell, what the fuck has Lenny Kravitz ever fucking done? What, honestly, has he ever done? He's had maybe three moderate hit songs in his entire career, but because he's a fashion icon, he makes the cut. This reminds me last year of Sheryl Crow getting in. And Sheryl Crow has more sales, a better track record when it comes to hit songs and hit albums, in my opinion, than Lenny Kravitz does. This is a pathetic, this is, at least with Mariah Carey, if we were talking about the Music Hall of Fame, I could get it. She puts Lenny Kravitz to shame if, if we're talking about the Music Hall of Fame. Now, Kravitz is, of course, closer to rock, but I still find it to be a pathetic nomination. No, no Lenny Kravitz. Oasis. I said yes. They were one of the seven I voted for. They were not all that popular outside of a few songs and one album, really, here in America. But overseas, they were so big, so huge. I think you've got to acknowledge their global impact. So I said yes to Oasis. Sinead O'Connor. She's only on this list, I'm sorry, because she's dead. She's only on this list because she died. I put her in the same category as I put Lenny Kravitz. One or two hits. Tore up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. She does not deserve to be in the Rock Hall of Fame, the Music Hall of Fame, but because she died. What great timing. And I'm sorry, you might not like me saying these things, but it's the truth. She's only on this final list of nominees because she died. No to Sinead O'Connor. 100% yes to Ozzy Osbourne. I put him up there with Foreigner and Peter Frampton as locks, in my opinion. Dead solid locks to get in, those three should be the ones that get in. And of course, that means they won't. I think Ozzy might. I don't think Foreigner will. Frampton is 50-50 with these idiots, probably. Charday, come on. Come on. Another pathetic one. Another pathetic nominee who has no business. No business being on this list. Outside of Smooth Operator, you name another Sade song for me. Would you please? Would you please? If we're going to put people in with one hit and one hit only, then where's the knack for my Sharona? 
one of the greatest songs of all time, one of the biggest hits of the 70s. If we're going to go down this road, then you better start talking about bands like The Knack. I think I, I don't think I have to rant and rave all that much about Mary J. Blige. You know how I feel. Eric B. and Rakim, A Tribe Called Quest. The final vote that I put in was for the Dave Matthews Band. I'm a fan. I do like them. I'll admit they're probably on the weaker side when it comes to nominees. But compared to everybody else, I put them in. And finally, so I've used up my seven votes. Cher, Foreigner, Peter Frampton, Cool and the Gang, Oasis, Ozzy, Dave Matthews Band. The last one we have not discussed is Jane's Addiction. And I know there's some people out there who love Jane's Addiction, but again, I say... What the hell have they done? I think I know two of their songs, maybe three, Ben Caught Stealing. And what the, is it the Mountain Song? That's theirs, I believe. It's not enough. It's not enough. When you look at all the other bands that are on the outside looking in, now we get to them. Iron Maiden. Didn't make it this year. Soundgarden. Travesty. Didn't make it this year. Alice in Chains. And of course, the usual sticks. REO Speedwagon. Kansas. Boston. Didn't make it. So I'm done. I'm done with my rant. If you want to hear me do it again, you can check out our companion podcast. That's me solo talking only about music. That is the Fortress of Rock. But we'll see what your Uncle Dave thinks next week. We'll pose this to him and see what he thinks. You'll get his opinions. So, new music, three new songs this week to review. I don't usually review a song a couple days after it came out. It's been known to happen, but very rare. And this one is for me personally. Dave would be throwing up if he had to review this because he does not like, he in fact hates Pearl Jam. So Pearl Jam has announced a brand new album coming out April the 19th called Dark Matter. And just a few days ago, they released the title track. Now, I've always said Pearl Jam, about every third or fourth album, is a classic with them. Bruce Springsteen kind of follows the same pattern. And I think this could be the one. From what I'm hearing, from what I, what I heard from the first song, Dark Matter, this could be their new great album. The next great album from Pearl Jam. Dark Matter is supposedly a re-energized, reinvigorated rock and roll version of Pearl Jam, going back to their earlier albums. They're referencing albums like Vitology in terms of the feel and the sound of Dark Matter. Now, the lead-off single, the title track, backs it up. 
Dark Matter is great. Great. And right off the bat, my rating, three and a half frenzies. It is phenomenal. But again, we're not going to bring this up with your Uncle Dave next week. He doesn't want to talk about Pearl Jam. He does not like them. The one thing I want to point out outside of praising Dark Matter, and it is rock. It is Pearl Jam rocking out. It is not Eddie Vedder mumbling and and being morose, as sometimes Pearl Jam has tended to do in the past. They fall into those funks. Great, great line in the chorus. Now, Pearl Jam, I, I would think Eddie Vedder and his bandmates, they're, let's say this, their political interests and opinions don't align with mine. So you have to take the music, if it's not blatantly, blatantly political, like a, a Green Day would be, and even Green Day, despite what Billy Joe Armstrong says in the press, they're smart enough. These This is why they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is why they're held in high regard, is because they're smart enough to make their lyrics just ambiguous enough, or even if they're insulting a certain political party, or they're insulting a certain group of people, they keep it vague enough where it doesn't come off exactly like an insult and you can actually even get behind it and i think that's the case here with dark matter because i love the line in the chorus everybody else pays for someone else's mistake and again that's ambiguous and vague enough where you can read into it what you want but you can't tell me that does not ring true in this day and age where most of us are bitter and angry about the way the world is and the way the world works now. Everybody else pays for somebody, someone else's mistake. Great, great line. Great song from Pearl Jam. Again, three and a half frenzies for the title track from the upcoming album, Dark Matter. Now, we've talked about a couple weeks from now, we've got Ace Fraley's new album coming out, former guitarist for Kiss. Second single off 10,000 Volts is Walking on the Moon. It's not a bad song, but just something about it isn't connecting with me. It lumbers a little, it's a little clunky, it's a little sludgy. And the lyrics definitely are nothing to write home about. Basically a standard, I'm infatuated with this woman song. The video, if you've seen the video, the video is very bizarre. I will just say that people have commented about space nipples. And I'll leave it at that. You can watch the video and judge for yourself. But as far as the actual song, again, not bad. I can't recommend it, again, because it's just something missing there for me to take it up to the... Now, 10,000 Volts, the first single, that one I felt. I needed that one at that particular moment in time because that was just straight on rock and roll. Pure distilled 
100 proof rock and roll. This one, it's like it's a combination of it tries too hard and it doesn't try hard enough to raise itself up above mediocrity. So I can only give Walking on the Moon by Ace Fraley two frenzies. Finally, last song here. If you guys haven't figured it out over the years, we've been doing this. I love Leonard Skinner, and I love the old band Blackfoot. Common thread is, of course, Ricky Medlock. Blackfoot was Ricky Medlock's baby, his band that he put together. Recognize a few of their songs, of course. They still play them on occasion on classic rock radio. Highway song, Train, Train, awesome, awesome stuff. And then, of course, he moved on, rejoined Leonard Skinner. He was with them briefly towards the beginning in the 70s, left to do Blackfoot, then came back, and he is still in Leonard Skinner to this day. But the Ricky Medlock Band has put out a charity song. Proceeds will go to a few different groups that help indigenous peoples. The song is Never Run Out of Road. Now, Ricky Medlock's voice is not as strong as it was back in the Blackfoot days. And this song is a little more subtle than something like Train Train, so he doesn't need to actually push his vocal limits. And that being said, it's a very good song. Very good song, obviously, for worthy cause. I would give it three frenzies. Um, and I will definitely be listening to it again and again. Now, it's not, there's nothing earth shattering here. You can say it's it's got a lot to do with, as he has said in recent interviews, the song's got a lot to do with his desire to just go out on tour and play concerts until the day he dies. And we seem to be hearing that sentiment a lot lately from a lot of these classic rock and rollers who are getting up in their 70s, pushing even 80 in some instances, late 60s. So that's why this song is kind of fitting for that that sentiment. So another great line, just like with Pearl Jam a few minutes ago we discussed, Great line here in Never Run Out of Road in the chorus is, I'll never run out of road till the good Lord leads me home. There you go. I tried to say it. Ricky Medlock, of course, says it better within the lyrics of great new song from him under the moniker of the Ricky Medlock band, Never Run Out of Road. So, we decided we're going to just do nonstop from now on with these podcasts. We've got some changes coming, some other changes, possibly, maybe. I know since we jumped into 2024, Dave and I have been trying some different things to get you guys engaged um, with the sports edition. We tried doing some polls and some Q&As, 
didn't really seem to connect. So we abandoned that after about a month. We're going to do the nonstop thing now with both our sports edition, which hits every Thursday morning. And now we're also going to carry it through with the weekend edition. We were hesitant to do it here with the weekend edition because more of a natural break between music than movies, than TV and streaming. But in the end, we decided why not just let you listen as long as you want. You need to pause it and come back. We shouldn't be forcing the brakes on you. Initially, I think we told you a week or two ago, and if we didn't, here you go. The reasoning behind having the promo breaks that we've had for years is because we initially were thinking of slotting in sponsors in those spaces. And it just hasn't worked out with the ways that we've been trying to put this podcast together and the time that we invest in it. We haven't really been able to focus on anything involving sponsorships, and that's fine. You guys don't need to hear about sponsors. All we care about is getting the content out to you. So no more breaks. We're going to run this thing straight through. So we hope you enjoy it now that you don't have to deal with these force-fed promo breaks. Now some of the other changes that are coming, you guys probably won't really be impacted by it, but Spotify, our host pat, our host platform is again, and they've been really good to us over the years and dependable for the most part, but every once in a while they have technical glitches that are very frustrating. You guys could tell about a month and a half ago, we missed our first week ever because Spotify basically screwed up our podcast recording and couldn't salvage it. And basically we were blocked out of being able to record for about three or four days until they shut down this ongoing process that was gumming up the works. So I was not happy with them at that point. And now they've done something else that really makes me wonder if it's not time to move on as they've told all of us who use their recording tools and their editing tools that those, those particular benefits will no longer be available to us starting in the summer. So we have to find another way to record and edit the podcast and basically just upload it to them as a finished product. So again, not very happy about it, but at least we've got more than enough time with their heads up to, over the next couple months, figure out how to get this podcast out to you. Otherwise, it won't change. Same format, same dopey, goofy, politically incorrect stuff that you're used to. Now, without Dave here, this is usually the time where we let you know where you can find Sports Frenzy 2.0. Whether you listen to the sports edition, again, Thursday mornings, or you listen to this particular version, Saturday morning, the weekend edition. We are on Spotify, Google, Radio Public until the end of March, and then they're shutting down, unfortunately. Pocket Cast, Apple, Overcast, CastBox, Amazon Music, Audible, and iHeartRadio. 
And of course, we do have a Facebook page where you can go, you can go there and you can find links to every single podcast episode. All right. Now I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to hold off on movies till we get through TV and streaming first. I've got a very special thing going on for the movies later on, so you'll have to bear with me. And then we've got something interesting here in TV and streaming. First up, I kind of teased this earlier this week in our sports edition. Of course, we just had the Super Bowl this past weekend, this past Sunday. And one of the big things about the Super Bowl. I'm not talking about the halftime show. Don't worry. We're done with music and Usher doesn't fit our demographic. Okay. Let's just put it that way. But we can talk about the ads, the Super Bowl ads. Now I personally, I'm very critical of the ads because I went to school for marketing and was very close to getting into advertising. So I I tend to look at these advertisements during the Super Bowl with a more critical eye. Now, when it comes to movie trailers, that's just more, does the trailer pull me in and make me want to see the movie or not? But with products, with services, I am always intrigued to see what these companies, these ad agencies come up with. And for the most part, over the last, I'd say, let's go five or six years, I've been extremely, extremely disappointed. Now, that might coincide to a certain extent with the fact that we have decided to allow pharmaceutical companies to to advertise. And it hasn't been that long. But if it makes me sound old, kids, there was a time when pharmaceutical companies, lawyers, I believe even hard liquor, but I know for sure lawyers and pharmaceutical companies could not advertise on TV. Oh, those were the days. Because if you'll notice a lot of what we're seeing here, we're getting bombarded with insurance companies and pharmaceutical ads. It seems like that's 50% of the advertisements we're seeing on television right now. You really are starting to notice, by the way, not seeing a lot of Coca-Cola commercials, not seeing a lot of Pepsi commercials, not seeing a, a whole lot of McDonald's commercials lately. Have you noticed this? So, again, I was disappointed this year. Most of the ads I thought were stupid. And I am not, I am not ashamed or scared to say that that Jesus foot washing commercial was garbage. It was stupid. It was dumb. And I don't judge people based on their religion. I don't. I'm sick of the anti-Semitic stuff that's going on in this world nowadays. 
but this was almost laughable, this washing the feet thing. So from a, a standpoint of purely of advertising quality, it was dumb. I'm not ripping on Christianity. Some of the other ad spots they've had, the shorter ones that we've seen throughout the last year or two when they started this campaign, much more effective. Like when they talk about family members getting together for holidays and arguing and and people storming out angry, where we've all done that, we've all been there. A little more relatable. The washing the feet thing just completely misses the mark. I think the one ad that really stole the show was, of course, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Jennifer Lopez, and Tom Brady with the Dung Kings. That was phenomenal. That was absolutely phenomenal. And I thought I saw something a day or two ago where they said that Dunkin' Donuts was actually going to sell those track suits. I believe for $60. They're probably sold out by now. Things like that don't last more than a couple hours in the age of the internet. But that, that was great. That was great. Tom Brady also, along with Vince Vaughn, another pretty, pretty decent spot with BetMGM, another, along with insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, online betting, ads are everywhere. The Tom Brady, Vince Vaughn one was very good though, where Tom Brady isn't allowed to bet anymore because he has won too much already. Dan Marino was in a a bunch of ads, which I found very odd. I love Dan Marino, one of the greatest, if not the greatest quarterbacks of all time. But all of a sudden, he's decided to tell his agent, book me in every commercial you can. Now, none of his made any impact. One that Yahoo gave an F to as they graded these ads. Yahoo gave an F to this Christopher Walken car commercial where everybody he encounters is trying to do an imitation of his voice. Of course, he has a very unique delivery. It's very funny. Great, great stuff. I thought they were very effective and very funny. He gives his car to the valet or he gets his keys back from the valet and the valet it's the real deal i can't do christopher walken obviously to save my life but i thought it was up there right behind the dunkings in terms of the best ads of super bowl sunday now one that didn't work quite as well had the exact same theme was of course state farm yes an insurance company playing off of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his ad or his, his language delivery, his, his unique vocal stylings. Let's put it that way. Cause he can't say neighbor. He says neighbor. 
Cut. Arnold. I'm hearing neighbor. It's neighbor. That's what I said. Neighbor. I can do Schwarzenegger a lot better than I can do Christopher Walken. That one still didn't mind it, but it wasn't quite as good to me as Christopher Walken. Now, the bad ones, a couple of the bad ones. I'm not going through every ad. I'm going to wrap it up here in just another minute. I don't like Tina Fey. I have never liked Tina Fey. I didn't like 30 Rock. Overrated comedian. Overrated show. She wasn't all that funny on Saturday Night Live. She appeals to a very, to me, very narrow group of people. And her booking.com ad, which I have seen almost nonstop since the Super Bowl, multiple times a day, is awful. Just awful. Different Tina Fey's. And then, of course, most of them are her lame-ass castmates from 30 Rock. And then, of course, at the end, Glenn Close. I would say probably the dumbest ad of the Super Bowl. Now, there are probably some that I have flushed from my memory banks that were even worse, but they luckily only had enough money to to pay for a Super Bowl spot, it looks like, and I have not seen them again since, so I've most likely forgotten a couple really bad ones. But since the Tina Fey booking.com one is still all over the place, I give that my award for the worst ad of the Super Bowl. Then finally, this Timu. What is this Timu thing? This online shopping app, Timu. I think they're creepy. Now, the TV ad, which again, I've been seeing nonstop ever since the Super Bowl, multiple times a day. With this animated character and a bunch of animated characters buying all this stuff for ridiculously low prices from Tamu. The thing is, their ads pop up on my my internet browser every day. And you know how people say that your phone is listening to you, or if you've got an Alexa, Alexa's listening to you, or or whatever little assistant helper you've got at home they're listening in on you and that's why you get these targeted ads on your phone well i i know you you can also they'll also look at your browsing history they'll somehow get into your browsing history because i don't have my microphone hooked in to my main computer it's I got a microphone down here in the studio. That's it. But somehow this Timu thing pops up all the time. And believe me, they got me all wrong. (laughs) They have got me all wrong if they think the stuff that they're showing me is the stuff that I want. Because they're showing me some very suggestive stuff. As if I was a woman with big boobs who wanted to wear tight clothes. Let's put it that way. (laughs) But I won't even go to this website or use this app. 
It's just, they're creepy. They're just very creepy. And I don't believe the prices that you were like, what, 99 cents for a hand mixer. I don't believe that for a second. So it it seems like a scam to me. I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories about China because it seems like it's pretty obvious to me it's from overseas. But anyway, there's a quick wrap-up of some of the Super Bowl ads. The movie trailers, obviously Dave and I talk about those as they're released. Everybody's talking about Deadpool and Wolverine. I don't think the trailer really gave me enough to go on because we don't really get to see Wolverine. Yes, it looks great. I have no doubt it's going to be great. And Ryan Reynolds has a couple great lines in there, especially about Disney. And I love that. I love the fact that he's tweaking Disney. Can't get enough of that. So obviously we've got that. Already talked about the fall guy and how that looks phenomenal. So we'll talk more about the trailers, Dave and I will, as we get closer to release dates when these movies are coming out. All right, another TV news. Cancellations. I hate cancellations, especially when they're, it's about shows that I love. I mean, why would I care if they're canceling shows that I hate? But it doesn't seem like they ever do. And it's these reality shows are just taking over because all these corporate head honchos are so scared to death about penny pinching. God forbid they would cut their bonuses or their salary. So one of Dave and I, one of our favorite comedies is coming to an end, not even going to get a final season like what we do in the shadows Tacoma FD true TV has canceled Tacoma FD after four seasons. There will not be a fifth season. So we're kind of stuck with a little bit of a cliffhanger that right now doesn't look like it's going to get resolved. Now this is a show that I watched the first year of when it was on CBS and I liked it. It was pretty good. And then I kind of lost track of it because at the time I didn't want to subscribe to Paramount Plus. They moved the show Evil from CBS to Paramount Plus. They did that with a couple shows. I think Navy Seals was another one. So I never watched anything beyond the first season with Evil. Of course, stars uh, Mike Coulter. I believe his name is, who was in Luke Cage, that awesome group, that awesome group of Marvel shows that originated on Netflix. He was Luke Cage. He stars in Evil, Michael Emerson in it as well. Um, They will give this a fitting farewell. Now, Evil is also ending after four seasons, but... It will debut on Paramount Plus in May, season four will. They are bringing the actors and the crew and everybody back to film an additional, I believe, four episodes to tack on to the end of season four so we get a resolution, so we get closure. So at least they're doing that. That's that's cool. And I might have to jump back in and start watching this show. 
like I said, probably have to start season two. I'll probably have to go back and watch season one. We hate reboots. We hate remakes. If you haven't figured that out by now, I don't know what's wrong with you. But I think Dave and I have made it abundantly clear that we hate reboots. We hate remakes. We hate the fact that a vast majority of Hollywood just recycles old ideas because they don't have any new ones. Because for being creative people, they lack creativity. And another example among the dozens and dozens and probably hundreds that we'll get throughout 2024, Sony Television is rebooting, wait for it, Bewitched. Of course, we had the original show, we had the movie adaptation with Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman, so now we've got to get another version of it coming back to TV at some point in the next few years. You guys know I love my wrestling. Now, I don't love it as much as I did during the pandemic. During the pandemic, it was one of the few things that got me through because you couldn't do anything. All you could do is watch old movies. Didn't have really new movies to watch. Didn't have new TV shows to watch. So you basically had to dig into your old archives, your old movies, your old TV shows, and that's fine to a certain extent. But the WWE was one of the only things that was still putting out original content. So when I grew up, I loved wrestling, dropped out for about 15 years because I did not like when they got really perverted and weird. But it drew me back in during the pandemic. Now, I don't watch every moment of every episode of Raw or SmackDown. I, I, I watched the first year or so of AEW. That's bored me to tears. So I don't watch that anymore. So on occasion, I indulge. I'll watch the premium live events on Peacock for WWE. Now we're going to get something called WWE Speed on x starting in april weekly on x of course formerly known as twitter wwe speed will supposedly feature top level wrestlers the stars in timed five minute matches so that could be interesting i'm not on x I don't really know if this is going to be enough to get me to sign on to X and just to watch these five-minute matches, but I'm putting it out there for you. If you're interested, go for it. I don't know. I'm on the fence. If it was on YouTube, I'd probably watch them. Let's put it that way. Now, in terms of the shows that Dave and I have been watching, Tokyo Vice has started season two on Max. He and I will start getting into that next week. As I'm taping here Thursday night, the 15th, third episode, two episodes last Thursday on its debut night. So one episode now weekly. So three deep in right now. 
Dave and I will play catch up on that next week. We will also give you a review of Monsieur Spade, which just wrapped up its six-episode run on AMC. There is an interesting, I wouldn't say a huge guest star at the end over the last half hour of the final episode. Not a huge guest star, but a guest star. A recognizable face. Dave and I will talk more about that next week. Of course, Clive Owen, brilliant. As Dashiell Hammett's world-weary detective Sam Spade over in France. Now, we will also wrap up Season 4 of True Detective Night Country. Season finale coming this Sunday on Max. Six episodes. I, uh, Dave and I were going back and forth on this, and I was going with past seasons. He told me that it was only six episodes, and I said, well, I don't know, because the first three seasons were all eight episodes. So I don't understand why they would be different here. Well, of course, because, again, penny-pinching and scrimping and saving, no longer do we get television seasons that have 23, 22 episodes. Remember, then it dropped down to, what, 13, and then it's 8, and now it's 6. I mean, it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. And then, of course, it takes them three times as long to put out six or eight episodes as it used to to put together 22 or 23. Look at Stranger Things as the perfect example. Stranger Things is the perfect example of what I'm talking about, of how long it takes to put together a short season. Yes, I know the episodes are usually long, but still. This is the world we live in. You're expected to do more, to pay more, and you get less and less in return. Now, finally, I do have a review in TV and streaming before we move on to movies. Even though it was canceled, and we talked about that last week. I did finish up the eight, yes, eight episodes of Obliterated on Netflix Now, if you've been listening over the last couple months, Dave finished it off a while back. I was going back and forth on whether or not I wanted to push through on this. There's definitely a big lull in the middle. That is what kind of kept me from finishing it off right away. It got a little bit better, gained a little bit more more, more momentum towards the end, but it is just basically a one-note show. Special ops group trying to prevent a nuclear bomb from going off in Las Vegas. Initially thinks in the first episode that they have foiled the plot, gotten their hands on the nuke, so they proceed to, yes, get obliterated as they party and celebrate like it's 1999. Unfortunately, in the middle of their 
carousing and celebrating and drinking and drug use and sex and debauchery, they are notified that no, you got a fake. You recovered a fake nuke. The real one is still out there. And by all accounts, you've got about 24 hours before Las Vegas goes nuclear. And I'm not really spoiling anything for you here. This all happens in the first 20, 25 minutes of the first episode. So the rest of the series is basically the special ops team as they're hungover, hungry, puking, hallucinating, dehydrated, trying to get themselves back together as best they can to foil this insidious plot to blow up Las Vegas. Now, I did end up liking it more than I thought I would. If you'd asked me a couple weeks ago, again, when I was hesitant to follow through, lull in the middle again, I don't think I would have given it the rating that I'm going to give it. It did get better towards the end. I will warn you. I will warn you. There is graphic, graphic nudity. Which is fine for adults if that's your cup of tea. And it's mine. I'm all in on boobies. So there you go. Unfortunately, most of the graphic nudity in Obliterated happens to be full frontal male genitalia. So there you go, ladies. Have at it. And of course, I reference, we've, Dave and I have been joking about this on and off over the last month or two. I referenced this in my story time here recently when I was talking about the Hitcher and C. Thomas Howell. Of course, as a much younger man, as he starred in that phenomenal thriller horror movie, he is in this as a much older man and, of course, has to show us his schlong very early on in the first episode. I do believe it was the first. Might have been early in the second, either way. Can't believe I'm trying to find an exact detail when it comes to the appearance of of C. Thomas Howell's penis, but there's plenty for the guys as well. There's plenty for the guys as well. The tech geek, of course, this is your typical motley crew of operatives. You've got the muscle, you have got the leader, you have got the sniper, you've got the bomb expert, you've got the wild card, and of course you have the tech geek. And in this case, the tech geek is Kimmy Rutledge. And I was smitten with her. Just smitten with her. And I was wondering why. I felt like I know her from somewhere else where I initially thought she was very attractive. And I finally, finally, after digging and digging and doing research, found out watching my morning sports show, Boomer and Geo, especially the last two years before Valentine's Day. Have you guys seen this, this ad for send a cake? 
where you open the box and they've got these little, I don't want to say fake butterflies, but that's basically what they are. You know, they're wrapped up with probably rubber bands or elastic bands. And then when the box is open, of course, the pressure is relieved. So they, they flutter out and there's a little tiny cake in there. And I'm sure it probably costs a hundred dollars, but the commercial's well done. It looks really cool, but there's this beautiful woman of Asian descent who gets the box with the, the little fake butterflies and the cake in it. And for the last two years, I have been enamored with her. And I'm like, Oh, she's pretty. She's got a great smile. She's not knocked down, drop dead gorgeous, but she just connected with me. And that's Kimmy Rutledge. That's what blew me away as I finally, finally found out today that Kimmy Rutledge, who plays Maya, the tech geek in Obliterated, and ends up showing off all of her assets in a couple different scenes. I will never, ever look at a canister of whipped cream the same way. That's the same woman from the Send a Cake commercial. I was like, mind blown. Just wanted to share that with you. And of course, the team leader, stunning in her own right. Shelly Hennig, who I believe her claimed of claim to fame is, I want to say she was in a soap opera, maybe Days of Our Lives. Don't quote me on that, but I know that from what I could tell on IMDb, she was in a soap opera for a considerable amount of time at one point. Now, it's obvious she had a writer in her contract. No nudity, because you never, they get real close a couple times, but you never see the actual goodies. I know. But that's why we're politically incorrect. I know you're going, shame, shame, Kevin. Shame, shame. How dare you objectify women? Go ahead and objectify the men. Go ahead, objectify C. Thomas Howell. Go for it. He's all out there for you in this one, ladies. If that's your bag of tricks, your cup of tea, go for it. We objectify everybody every day, whether it's based on looks, intelligence, power, celebrity influence. I don't have a problem with it at all. It's part and parcel. It's the price you pay to be a celebrity. You're going to get objectified. And don't tell me you don't walk into your local bar or your local supermarket and objectify the people that you think are attractive or unattractive. Don't tell me you don't because you do. Don't be a liar. We all do it. So yes, plenty of upfront nudity for the women as well as the men in Obliterated. So overall, in terms of the show itself, it's fine. It's fun. I enjoyed it in the end. Not the greatest in the world. A little bit sad. Now looking back that they've canceled it. And again, in this day and age, we talked about it here already multiple times in this episode because it was too expensive. That's what I, I read. 
They canceled it because it was too expensive. I think Dave and I discussed this briefly last week. This is why we're going to reality shows 24-7, and it it's driving me crazy. Reality TV sucks. It's worthless. It's mindless. It's the, the TV equivalent of eating marshmallow fluff morning, noon, and night. I can't, the only reality TV I watch is on Patrol Live. And at the same time, of course, that is depressing because of what you're seeing in these stupid people getting arrested for doing stupid things. And then the the guilty pleasure of it makes you feel better that you're not as stupid as the people on that show. So obliterated, three frenzies, probably a week three frenzies. Let's go there. Week three frenzies from me, the maestro, for obliterated. So let's move on to movies. Before we get to my double feature of recent Jason Statham movies. No, not the beekeeper. Not there yet. A couple little movie tidbits to discuss. There is another new Predator movie in the works called Badlands. It is in development. Of course, I have got, while I've still got a very good trial price on Hulu, I have got to check out Prey. I have had a lot of people tell me Prey is fantastic, so that's a bad one on me. That movie's been out for quite a while. I've had access to Hulu on and off over the last couple years. I should have already watched this. So, bad, bad maestro. But, again, based on what I've heard from friends, Prey was very, very good, so... Good to see that there's going to be another one coming again. The new Predator movie called Badlands. Don't know if that will go to the theaters or that will be going straight to Hulu like Prey did. The Fantastic Four. Yes, another incarnation of the Fantastic Four. And we know Marvel right now since they have come under the thumb, I mean the gentle, caring oversight of Disney have not had a lot of success ever since Endgame. The Marvel Universe has been a mess, the cinematic universe. Most of the movies that have come out since Endgame have not been good at all. Now, supposedly, there's hope on the horizon. Promising version of Suicide Squad, Marvel's version, the Thunderbolts, coming out next year. And now, the third version, official version, I should say, of the Fantastic Four has now been officially cast on Valentine's Day. 
Marvel confirmed the four actors, actresses, who will be Reed Richards, Sue Richards, of course, Ben Grimm, The Thing, and Johnny Storm. I like the casting, but I will have one complaint. Of course, I will have one complaint. Let's start off with the women. The the soul woman. Vanessa Kirby. I like her. Of course, she's played a prominent role in the last few Mission Impossible movies. Vanessa Kirby will play Sue Storm slash Sue Richards. Joseph Quinn will, will play Johnny Storm. Who is Joseph Quinn? Some of you know but there are probably some out there who don't. Joseph Quinn played the awesome, fantastic Eddie Munson in the last season, the most recent season of Stranger Things. So he will end up being the human torch. Ebon Moss Backrock will be Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing. Now, I most recently saw him in No Hard Feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. Us pop culture geeks, Marvel, DC, comic book geeks know him from, again, second reference in this episode, going back to the old Netflix Marvel shows. He was in The Punisher. He played Micro, basically the tech and weapon support for Frank Castle. So again, very interesting, very cool little bit of casting here. Now, the one problem I have is with Reed Richards. I know there's, you can say it boy, can you say, or it girl, can you say it man? Because it seems like Pedro Pascal is in everything. He's in fucking everything now. And if you guys listen weekly, you know I was not a fan of The Last of Us. I'm done with it. I didn't like it. It didn't stand out to me as being better, worse, or anything really significantly different from The Walking Dead. And of course, it is overly, ridiculously politically correct. But I like him. I do like him as an actor. Now, the only problem is with this little teaser poster that we got on Valentine's Day showing us the cast. Granted, they were drawn. It was not a picture. But Pedro Pascal has his mustache. Reed Richards does not have a mustache. He better shave that sucker off because I'm not putting up or I've got to keep the mustache for The Last of Us. Fuck The Last of Us. It's more important that you are true to the characters when you're doing a comic book movie of this level and significance. Shave the goddamn mustache, Pedro. Other than that, if he shaves the mustache... I'm going to start a petition, an online petition. 
shave the mustache, Pedro. If he does that, then this is by far the best the best casting of the three movies where Marvel has tried to finally get the Fantastic Four right. They've had problems getting the Fantastic Four right and problems getting the Hulk right. They've obviously done wonders with Iron Man, Doctor Strange, multiple times with Spider-Man, so it's very intriguing that they can never get the Fantastic Four right. They can never get the Hulk right. Hulk, very difficult. I get it. Just like the thing in the Fantastic Four. You got to rely a lot on a combination of makeup and special effects. But again, shave the fucking mustache, Pedro, if you're going to be Reed Richards. And then we'll be okay. Now, I have not been to Las Vegas in a long, long time. It's been at least 15 years, if not longer. And there have obviously been a lot of upgrades and a lot of really, really cool stuff that they've put in over the years. Las Vegas constantly changing, constantly evolving. Well, I I just read a story today where Lionsgate... is going to open their fourth it's not it's not a ride it's not a uh, an exhibition they call them experiences two of them happen to be escape rooms but the newest one is the John Wick experience will be opening at some point later this year in Las Vegas from what i could tell it's going to open just basically a block or two away from Treasure Island where you would go into the Las Vegas Continental. And of course, there's merch shops, there is a bar, and there is an immersive experience. Now, what I was saying earlier is that there are three other exhibitions, experiences, escape rooms that Lionsgate has had a hand in setting up. There's one involving the Hunger Games, but the two that are really cool and they're right next to each other. Now, they're off the beaten path a little bit. And you got to be careful in Vegas. Even I know after being away for 15 years, you still got to be careful in Vegas. But these two... These are both escape rooms, and these two I would love to get into. There is an escape room based on Saw, the movie series. Oh, that would be fantastic. And then the other one, right up there with Saw in terms of best horror movies ever, Blair Witch. Oh. Man, would those be cool as hell to check out on a vacation. And and I know, I've heard people say, Vegas isn't all that fun to live in. But man, I don't know how you can experience everything in Las Vegas without taking a couple months off in your life 
and having a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I'm not talking about gambling. I'm just talking about going to see all these different places and all these shows and all these casinos and hotels. And now you've got the Las Vegas Raiders. You've got the Golden Knights in hockey. I mean, you could literally spend probably two months in Las Vegas if you were rich, had the money, didn't have to work, and and just experience and immerse yourself in all this cool shit. All right, one last thing before we get to Jason Statham. I have got a couple Clint Eastwood badasses of the week when it comes to the world of pop culture. Now, one of these I am ashamed to admit I have been holding on to for almost five weeks. Ever since the premiere of True Detective, we talked about that. A little while back, we'll have that full review of season four starring Jodie Foster next week. But something Jodie Foster said about a month and a half ago really resonated with me as an older gentleman, an old fogey, a bitter old get off my lawn guy. In an interview when they were promoting the start of True Detective Night Country on Max, Jodie Foster happened to mention, God, I love her. God, I love her. Great actress, just cool as hell, has been been in some of the the best movies of all time. And see, this this is where I get all pissed off at this world. I I am a white, heterosexual guy, okay? And, of course, that makes me the enemy. I hate everybody, according to the media. I'm a sexist, I'm a misogynist, I'm a homophobe, I'm a bigot. According to the media, because I'm a white, heterosexual, that's what I am. And that's, of course, completely 100% false and untrue. But... I know Jodie Foster is a lesbian, and I don't care. Just like I know Kevin Spacey is a degenerate pervert, and I don't care. Because I separate the art from the artist. But in the case of Jodie Foster, she is so fucking cool and down to earth in everything she does. This is why I'm saying... Most of us white heterosexual guys are not scumbags. As long as you're not shoving an agenda down my throat, I don't care what you do in your personal life. I don't care what you look like or who you sleep with. And that's what, again, makes Jodie Foster so unbelievably awesome. But the quote that really got me, Again, promoting the new True Detective, wrapping up this week on Max, talking about working with Gen Z. And again, as an older person, I completely relate to her and what she said. Gen Z, she said, quote, really annoying to work with. (laughs) 
And then she went on to describe how they just work whenever they want and they set their own hours. And if you try to tell them, no, you can't do that, they basically say, well, then I quit. I'm not going to work for you because you're making it too hard on me. You're making things too difficult on me. I need my safe space. And I'm paraphrasing all this, but if you go out and look up the, the interview, but again, telling you for sure, she said, quote, really annoying, unquote, in terms of working with Gen Zers. God bless Jodie Foster. She is so awesome. And again, she is fantastic in True Detective Night Country. Why would we expect anything less? From the woman that gave us Clarice Starling. She's just, she's awesome. So Jodie Foster belatedly, again, about five weeks late, one of my two Clint Eastwood badasses of the week in the world of entertainment and pop culture. And the other one is, happens to be one of my two or three favorite actors. And you can throw Jodie Foster in there as well. Christian Bale. Now, Christian Bale has got a spotty reputation. We heard years and years ago about how he was a, a beast on the set of Terminator when he played John Connor. I personally thought that movie was fantastic. But when he, he, he did his take on John Connor, we heard how he was berating set assistants. He's not a bad guy. He's now obviously a phenomenal actor. He has been in so many, so many great movies. Okay, go on and on. The Machinist, of course, all the Christopher Nolan, Batman movies, The Prestige with Hugh Jackman. Christian Bale is an amazing, amazing actor. But he's also an amazing human being, despite the occasional misstep that we hear about. Christian Bale and his wife, Sibby, just broke ground on the West Coast on a foster care facility called Together California. So yes, kids, good things can happen in California. It's not a complete and total wasteland. This is a dream of his that has been over 15 years in the making. Basically, a foster care facility to try to keep brothers and sisters together. If something tragic or otherwise something happens in the family where the kids have to go into foster care, Together California will at least try to keep the brothers and sisters together not split them apart, not put them 10 steps behind in life, keep them around their siblings and give them a support system that they need. So kudos to Christian Bale and his wife, Sibby. You can be great when it comes to acting whether it's Jodie Foster, whether it's Christian Bale, and you can be 
great and insightful human beings. So my two Clint Eastwood badasses of the week here on the weekend edition are Jodie Foster and Christian Bale and his wife, Sibby. All right, that gets us to Jason Statham. And now I want to say, Jason Statham, kudos to him. I'm happy, happy for him that The Beekeeper, out right now in theaters, is a massive success when it comes to those type of action movies. Looks like it's on pace to make at least $60 million, which is a ridiculous amount of money. Especially for him, if it's not a Fast and Furious movie or it doesn't involve a big shark. But of course we know Jason Statham is a an anachronism. He harks back, harkens back to the 80s. The, the golden age of action movies with Seagal and Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Van Damme. Liam Neeson, of course, is he was the crown holder. He was the standard bearer for quite a few years after the Taken movies came out. But he kind of just put so many movies out there so often, so quickly that now his popularity is waning a little bit. We're starting to see more of his stuff go straight to video, on demand. But we have Jason Statham. And again, the beekeeper doing remarkably well. So Jason Statham, I think I can safely say, is now your number one action hero in the world. Now Keanu Reeves would probably argue because of John Wick, but Jason Statham can do different projects. He can do Hobbs and Shaw, he can do The Meg. Keanu is just John Wick. And of course, the John Wick movies are ridiculously good. Nobody's disparaging them. But Jason Statham tends to put out a couple movies a year. They get to the theaters. Again, The Beekeeper hits big. Meg 2 hits big. But unfortunately, there are the misfires. There are those movies that don't do well, that don't bring in a big audience. Now, sometimes there are other factors involved, like Wrath of Man, which was great. Kind of got sucked in to that post-pandemic cautious lull when moviegoers still weren't really venturing out to the theaters, but still made about $27 million at that time. Not bad, not bad at all. And of course, he had all three Transporter movies, which were all good. And he has a penchant to work a lot with Guy Ritchie, who is a another action connoisseur who will put out classic movies or near classic movies like Snatch, The Gentleman, but he will have his misfires. So I am going to review a movie that Dave went out to the theaters to see that I just caught on Blu-ray to complete my collection. 
The Expendables 4, featuring, of course, Jason Statham as Christmas. And one that I don't think Dave has gotten to see yet because it really did not do well at all at the box office last year. The Combo Pack, Guy Ritchie directing, Jason Statham in Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre. So, let's get into these two flicks. And unfortunately, I will say, I can't recommend either one of them. Still want to see The Beekeeper, still love the Transporter movies. The Meg movies, eh, eh, eh. But I want to do a comparison with these two movies because I know Dave was really negative about Expendables 4. And to a certain extent, he was right. But again, when we do this compare and contrast, Sometimes things aren't as bad as you thought they were. Let's put it that way. So let's get into it. All right, as far as the Expendables go, you know the drill. Sylvester Stallone basically runs this whole deal. Not only behind the scenes, but on screen as Barney. The Expendables, of course, an elite group of renegades and rogues who are called on to solve the world's problems underneath the table because, of course, they're Expendables. So if they die, nobody cares. No country cares. In the fourth incarnation of the Expendables, Jason Statham kind of jumps up to the front here not necessarily taking over the leadership role per se. That would fall to somebody else. I will not spoil it for you. But in terms of screen time, Jason Statham is the star here. And it's the typical plot that we seem to see all the time. At least we used to see. I've noticed here a changing of the guard when it comes to, now we talked about in the past, who the villains used to be in the old movies, right? Used to be the Russians all the time. And then we get the neo-Nazis. And so you can kind of figure out the cookie cutter villains. And you can also now figure out the cookie cutter crisis to solve. We talked about obliterated. And we talked about how that involved a nuclear bomb that was going to blow up Las Vegas. Well, of course, Expendables 4 involves, again, nuclear bombs. Triggers being stolen for said nuclear bombs. A mysterious shadowy figure behind the scenes named Ocelot, who was running the whole show. And, of course said nuclear bomb is supposed to be detonated in a specific area which would trigger World War III. Please tell me if you have heard this before. So in that sense, Expendables 4 is not really 
anything new or anything overly creative when it comes to plot, climax, resolution, do your little diagram. There's nothing new there for all you film students. That being said, it's always fun to see the the B-listers, the now B-listers that Stallone and he gets together, that he assembles to become the latest incarnation of the Expendables. So in this one, we have got, of course, Statham. He is not a B-lister. I still think he's an A-lister, again, based on the beekeeper and its success. But, of course, you've got 50 Cent. You've got Megan Fox, you've got Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture, Andy Garcia, so among others, the martial arts guys, Tony Jaa is in it as well. So that's always kind of fun to see how these guys pull off the fight scenes, the action scenes. There are a couple cool moments in the movie. There is a a motorcycle chase on an ocean freighter, which is very cool. All the the motorcycles, of course, armed with machine guns. So I kind of enjoyed that for a couple minutes. There's some helicopter work early on involving uh, flares and countermeasures. Of course, if a missile is fired at a helicopter, You've got to fire countermeasures and flares to try to attract the missiles away from the the helicopter. Very cool visuals involved there. So now the, the, the complaint that Dave had about it was everybody was trying to one up the other when it came to the script in spouting off insults and one liners. I will disagree with him to an extent on this. I didn't find it that bad or that irritating. Yes, there's a little bit of it, but I really didn't sense or see that it was any more than what you would normally get from any other action movie. So it didn't bother me as much as it bothered him. Um, But again, that being said, it's a big empty when it comes to plot and story. You got to appreciate the, the cast for what they are. And the action sequences, couple again, couple pretty good above average ones in there. So again, I'm not recommending Expendables 4 to anybody, but I'll give it two frenzies. It's not abysmal. I didn't hate myself for watching it. In the end, it's, again, a fitting addition. And obviously, because it was a box office bomb, probably the last edition we will see of the Expendables. So, of course, we go from that Jason Statham movie to Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre, which came out, I believe, very early in 2023 and and made even less of an impact in the theaters than Expendables 4 did. Now, the interesting thing here is Operation Fortune had more going for it. It still had the same level of cast in terms of recognition, name recognition, 
you have in Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre, you have Josh Hartnett, Carrie Elways, Hugh Grant, and Aubrey Plaza, along again with Mr. Statham. And in this particular instance, again, compare and contrast, you have a great director in Guy Ritchie. So what went wrong? Well, there's a reason why this movie did not do well at the box office. is because at least while Expendables 4 had a little bit of a fun factor to it, just a little bit of, you know, the whole let's blow stuff up, you know, break shit, shoot shit, carnage everywhere. Operation Fortune just is not fun. It is just a dull, boring, wannabe Mission Impossible. And it pains me to say that because, again, Guy Ritchie has put together a handful of really, really good movies. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I mean, come on. Now, he has occasionally, occasionally stumbled. Rock and Roller comes to mind. I wasn't a big fan of that. But usually, 70% of the time, his movies are very good. But Operation Fortune is bad. It is just bad. Again, recycled plot. This is the other quote-unquote big problem that we're getting now in these action movies. We've got the nukes still around, as we've talked about with Obliterated and Expendables. And then, of course, AI which, of course, appears in the, the latest Mission Impossible as a threat. All the world's leaders want to get a hold of the, the AI technology that will be able to override satellites and the banking services and everything. Credit card companies, you name it. So you got nukes, and now in Operation Fortune, you have an AI threat oops spoiler alert i guess i shouldn't have said that because for the first half of the movie at least half if not two-thirds we're told there's a mysterious threat that somebody wants to buy and we don't know what it is we don't know if it's weapons. We don't know if it's a nuke. We don't know what it is. But somebody just wants to buy this mysterious, awful thing that will ruin life as we know it. It's like, what? So this crack team that's assembled, and again, it's it's so blatant that it's trying to be like Mission Impossible because opposed to the Expendables where it's just a bunch of thugs. Everybody fights hand-to-hand. Everybody shoots a gun. Operation Fortune, it's so obvious it's trying to be Mission Impossible because you've got your leader behind the scenes, Kerry Elways, who is obviously channeling Peter Graves. Then you have to recruit an actor, Josh Hartnett, 
because we need him to play a certain role to infiltrate the middleman in his life. Middleman, of course, played by Hugh Grant. Then we've got the the gun expert, the sniper, played by Bugsy Malone, who's got this ridiculously thick British accent where I can't hear half of what he's saying. I don't understand half of what he's saying. And then, of course, there's Aubrey Plaza, the tech geek. And they all get pulled in and recruited. Again, you've got to, if you want to watch it, go ahead. I'm not recommending it. I'm giving it one and a half frenzies. Worse than The Expendables 4. But they, they go so far as to have the same photos that you would see at the beginning of the old Mission Impossible episodes where they would throw the glossy photos of the group they were going to put together for a particular mission whether it was Martin Landau or Barbara Bain or whoever it would be. They almost do the exact same thing with tablets, scrolling through pictures on a tablet here in Operation Fortune. But again, Operation Fortune is dull and boring. And oh, I forgot, Aubrey Plaza as the tech geek. What the hell is the appeal of Aubrey Plaza? I still, to this day, do not understand why Everybody thinks she's awesome. I think she's a terrible actress. Oh, but she's so cool and blasé. She's irritating. And she's not even all that pretty. She was good in The White Lotus. But this whole persona that she's developed over the years, ever since she was in, what, Parks and Recreation, is just irritating. This is why she's never broken out as a big-time film star, is because she's like a Jennifer Coolidge, who, of course, is all over the place now in commercials for Discover. But they develop this one-note persona and think, I'm going to ride this as long as I can, just like Polly Shore did back in the day as the Weasel. How far did that get Polly Shore? Now he's battling Richard Simmons, begging him basically to play him in a biopic. Because they're only one note actors and actresses. They only can do one thing and one thing well. And that's how I feel about Aubrey Plaza. And she is so irritating and so dull in this movie. But she's not the only one. Jason Statham is collecting a paycheck, nothing more. Same with Carrie Elways. Maybe Hugh Grant, you could say he is the one saving grace where he injects a little bit of life into this movie. Josh Hartnett's awful as the bumbling, stumbling actor trying to play the suave and sophisticated actor just very, very disappointing. One of the most disappointing movies I have seen in years. So again, only one and a half frenzies for Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. 
So unfortunately, Mr. Statham, two movies you've put out in the last couple years that I cannot recommend to the good folks out there listening to the weekend edition here on Sports Frenzy. So this takes us to moments of silence. And again, hope you're enjoying the nonstop format as we just keep rolling right through. A couple of, I hate to say lesser known musicians, but I'm going to have to say it, lesser known musicians. Mojo Nixon, musician, actor, DJ. I know of him, but I really don't know all that much about him otherwise. I recognize the name, so that should really tell you, given how much I listen to music and how much I pay attention to pop culture. Unfortunately, what little impact he has had. But, again, I recognize the name, so thoughts and prayers to the family and friends of Mojo Nixon. The worst part of it was dying on a cruise. Of course, this was one of those cruises where, you know, a bunch of famous people, musicians, whoever, getting together to entertain the the people who paid for tickets. He ends up dying of a heart attack in the middle of one of those cruises. So that, you know, obviously unexpected, kind of rough. And then... The last original member, surviving original member of the Spinners, Henry Fambro, passed away here recently. So thoughts and prayers to the family and friends of Henry Fambro and, of course, the Spinners fans out there everywhere. And as Dave would say at this point, it's time to pivot Four dumbasses this week in the world of pop culture and entertainment. Most of them just big, fat, fucking whiners. Let's start off with a big, fat, rich, ugly, fucking whiner named Jay-Z. Now, you guys know I could give two rip shits about Taylor Swift. I've got Taylor Swift fatigue. I'm tired of her. I don't need her in my life. I don't need to hear about her and Travis Kelsey. I don't need to hear about conspiracies involving her and who she's going to support for the presidency and how that's going to swing the vote. But that being said, why does it bother me that she wins Grammy Awards hand over fist this year, of course, winning album of the year? I don't care. I don't care about the Grammys. Grammys to me are irrelevant. But it obviously matters to Jay-Z. Again, that ugly, ugly, ugly dude who should be thanking the Lord above every day that he's got Beyonce. 
That should be more than enough. Shut your fucking mouth, Jay-Z, and just be happy that you've got that beautiful woman by your side. But it's not enough. And again, I get I get the inclination, the instinct to protect and look out for your loved ones. That I get. But when you get to a certain level of popularity, whether you're talking about Oscars or Golden Globes, Tonys, the, the creme de la creme, we saw it a few years ago. A reflection of our society, perhaps, when Will Smith decided to get on stage and slap Chris Rock. And guess what? Will Smith has had to take a couple years off because you just don't cross that line. Well, now Jay-Z whining at the Grammys about his wife, Beyonce, not winning album of the year just comes off as pathetic and a little racist, frankly. Beyonce's won a ton of awards. And she on her own is very successful and very rich. And so you can look at Jay-Z doing this as protecting his loved one, his spouse, and that's fine. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think there's this deep-seated racist hatred for Taylor Swift. And I think it, it just comes to a head here with Jay-Z being a petulant little baby complaining to the audience that the voters need to get it right. Who dictates getting it right? You do, Jay-Z? So you're God now? You dictate what is right and what is wrong? That is unbelievably arrogant, and it makes you one of our truly major league dumbasses of the week. Another wine bag who's been handed everything on a silver platter. Oh, I'm sure he's got a tale of woe from when he was younger. And I'm going to butcher his name and I don't care. But we all know his face from those Tide commercials. You're going to need more Tide. He was in a moderately big hit movie a few years back, The Big Sick. Kumail Nanjiani. You'd know his face. He was in The Eternals. Remember Eternals? One of those movies we were just talking about from Marvel that, that basically bombed. Now, it didn't do... Now, in retrospect, didn't do nearly as bad as what we've seen here recently with movies like Morbius and Madam Web, which just came out and is not looking very good in terms of critical reactions or box office. And then, of course, Ms. Marvel, the Marvels, all that garbage. Well, again, Kumail Nanjiani was in Eternals. He had to go to therapy over the bad reviews that Eternals got. Oh my God. This is the generation we're dealing with. And these, these are people who are in their 30s. 
What are they going to do when they, they age another 20 years? Oh, my God. What are they going to do in their 50s and 60s? What are they going to have the bitch and piss and moan about? Who are they going to be able to sue? Or, or badmouth in the social media post. He had to go to therapy, despite the fact he's making millions of dollars now as a successful actor in Hollywood. Had to go to therapy because of the bad reviews of Eternals. And he was part of a big ensemble. So it wasn't just him taking the hit for how the movie wasn't all that good. I didn't personally think it was awful. I thought it was okay. But again, it's the entitlement from these actors and actresses in Hollywood who think they are royalty, who think we should bow down and kiss their fucking feet. And I'm tired of it. And I have no sympathy. You go to therapy for real trauma. Losing a loved one violently. Divorce. Not because your movie got bad reviews. So here. Get some Tide Pods, Kumail Nanjiani, and stick them straight up your ass. Because you're a dumbass. Now this is a follow-up. Remember we talked about Alyssa Milano? We talked about how she set up a GoFundMe. Her son needed to go to Cooperstown with his team for a trip. And of course, Alyssa Milano worth I believe approximately $10 million, not even counting the wealth of her husband, who is much, much more successful than she is. I'm not judging, but I'm just saying combined, they could, they could flip the bill. Okay. But she sets up a GoFundMe page trying to raise $10,000 for her son's team so they could take a trip to Cooperstown. It's a bad look, a bad, bad look. And a lot of people have commented on this. And I think the big thing is that makes her a dumbass is let somebody else on the team, let somebody else's mother do it. You can sit there and go, well, they'll recognize me because I am a big Hollywood celebrity. And that's where you're a dumbass because it makes you look stupid and greedy. You should have let somebody else. Nobody's expecting you to flip the bill for all the other families. I'm with you on that, Alyssa. But it's a bad look for you to go out begging for money for them. Okay, let's put it that way. Now, the follow-up is, after a couple weeks have passed since this GoFundMe debacle, guess who shows up at the Super Bowl? Where tickets were going the the week before the game on the secondary market for over $7,000 a piece. Guess who gets in to the Super Bowl? Yes, Miss GoFundMe Alyssa Milano. So again, she must really be hurting for money. 
and her poor son. I hope he can go to Cooperstown. As the great Eddie Murphy once said, because his mommy's on the welfare. Not. So for the second time in the past month, Alyssa Milano, just again, because you're so tone deaf and you don't understand how bad these things look, you are a dumbass. And finally, to wrap up the weekend edition, I don't know who the dumbass is here, but I'm sick of Snoop Dogg. I am sick of Snoop Dogg. I've told you guys this for weeks and weeks and months. I'm sick of Snoop Dogg. I don't understand the appeal. Lovable pothead. No, Cheech and Chong were lovable potheads. Snoop Dogg is just a terrible rap artist who's taking advantage of the idiocy of America right now. So Snoop Dogg supposedly was doing something nice and trying to set up, I guess, affordable cereal for certain families and children. I don't understand the marketing genius there, but he came out with, uh, there were a couple brands, I believe, but the prominent one was Snoop Cereal. And of course, big cereal manufacturer Post was on board with this. Now, Snoop Dogg is suing Walmart and Post over how they marketed and merchandised Snoop Cereal. He claims that he knows people who worked at certain Walmarts where they were told, customers were told, the cereal was out of stock. The employees were told, don't put it out. We have it, but don't put it out on the shelves. And then Post was making it difficult to sell the cereal at an affordable price supposedly wanting $10 a box. So again, this is why I don't know who the true dumbass is here. Let's just say they're all dumbasses. If if we're going to believe all this, which I don't, I don't believe Walmart had the cereal hidden in the back room and told employees, do not put it out on the shelves. Could I see Post overpricing it? Yes. Could I see that being because Snoop Dogg is not telling the truth about how much money he wanted to make off of it? I'm just saying, there is plenty of dumbasses in this Snoop cereal debacle to go around. That is going to do it for the weekend edition. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm the maestro Kevin Crane. Your Uncle Dave, the Conquistador Dave Height, will rejoin me next week. Reviews of Monsieur Spade, Season 1. A True Detective Night Country, Season 4. We'll figure out what types of movies we'll have for you to review. I'm sure your Uncle Dave has read 15 books by now, so we'll check you out in seven days, kids. Take care. <laughs>